Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I'm Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I would like to thank you for inviting us into your home on this Arab Shabbat for our B'nai Shalom broadcast from our family to yours. Thank you and Shabbat Shalom. Um, we had a wonderful Feast of Weeks, our Shavuot conference this last weekend. Um, the people were very blessed. The spirit was moving. And I'd like to thank everybody who joined us and would also like to encourage everyone uh, who missed it to uh, join us. We're doing it again next year. In fact, our registration is already open for next year's event. We have our early bird registration. You can go to ShavuotEvent.com and you can register your family now and prepare to meet us and join us at the Feast of Weeks next year. We already have a commitment from Rico Cortez to join us next year. So um, have every intention that it's going to be a wonderful event next year as we continue to keep the appointed times of the Lord. Uh, many of us are still recovering from all the work and the effort of the weekend. Um, my family is still in the process of healing. My mom, we thank you for all the prayers um, for my family. And uh, my father as well is also recovering still from the weekend. And so we have a wonderful blessing. Daniel Musson will be again sharing our Haftorah portion for this week. A couple of other announcements we have. Our Feast of Tabernacles registration is still open. We have filled up our RV slots. Um, however, we are asking the people who have registered to please pay in full to confirm your spot in the camp. Um, we have plenty of tent spaces available. And even if you do have an RV and haven't yet registered, sign up. We'll get you in wherever we can fit you uh, at any point in time. So please continue to register for that. We're going to have another wonderful appointed time of the Lord with that event as well. Um, also, we have another Q&A session scheduled for next week um, where, where we will be answering some of your questions. Um, so we ask that you send your questions into QA at lionlamb.net and um, we will try to get to your questions um, as soon as we can on our next broadcast. And then also for our local brethren, um, this Sunday, June 11th, is our next men's prayer breakfast where a group of men come and join here locally with the ministry. We pray for the national ministry, the local brethren, and lift up everyone in prayer. So we invite people to be a part of that and encourage you to also join our ministry in prayer as we continue to move forward um, with all the blessings that the Lord is doing for us, guiding our steps and leading us with his Holy Spirit. Amen. So once again, thank you for joining us here on our Arab Shabbat broadcast. We will now have the Kiddush and the family blessings. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kiddushanu Bemetvotav Betzivanu Lehad Lechner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech 
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh No Tehilot Oh Sefelei Oh Sefelei Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. 
Baruchata Aranai, El Hainu Melech Alam, Asher Natan Anu et Derech, Hayashua Bamashiach Yeshua. Altogether, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru Ben Israel et Hashabat, Lasot et Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bene Avayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashemayim, Vayet Haaret, Avayom, Hashavi Ishavat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, v'kol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'kol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. V'shinantam la'venecha, v'tepadabam p'shivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. Ukershatam la oto yadecha, v'heyu latotvobinenecha, uchetatam amazuzo petecha uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Bamidbar in the wilderness, to the book of Numbers, to chapter 8. Hold your finger there as we do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is a wonderful uh, portion of scripture with a lot of content and a lot of wonderful parallels to our Messiah Yeshua and a lot of things for us to learn. As I said, we are in the wilderness. One of the other things this uh, Torah portion is well known for is being one of the hardest to pronounce, uh, which is kind of fun. But a, to do my best, it is entitled um, Baha Alotcha, which means when you set up or when you raise up. Or when you exalt or lift up something. And what it is, it comes from our portion here in Numbers chapter 8. When it says, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps of the menorah in the tabernacle. We've had the commandment about the lampstand, the creation of it back in Exodus. But again, this is all a part of the same story. All a part of the same narrative. And what we have here is an additional instruction here in just the first couple of verses. Of chapter 8 with regard to the lampstand. And it says when you arrange what it is is when you lift up or when you set up the lamps. In the ancient times, in the menorah, the way the menorah was constructed, it was as tall as a man. And when one of the priests, when Aaron was to go and light those lamps, he would have to lift himself up to it. There would have to be a set of steps or something to work and set up the lamps. And let me go ahead and read here, and um, let's go ahead and get into our Torah portion here about this commandment. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face forward the, toward the front of the lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the workmanship of the lampstand was hammered gold from its shaft to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord has shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. One of the things about this lampstand and the menorah, many have drawn parallels to the spirit of the Lord. Many have also drawn many parallels to Yeshua, the Messiah, being this lampstand, being a symbol of him. This portion and this small amount of verses here actually has an amazing parallel to Yeshua. You probably didn't catch it reading it in the English. There might be some things that might make you think, well, this probably relates to other parts of Scripture. But let me assure you that this portion, as well as several other parts of our Torah portion this week, have an amazing parallel to Yeshua. In fact, I, as I read and continued to study for this week, so many things just kept telling me Yeshua, Yeshua, the Messiah. He's a part. He's all in this Torah portion. In this one in particular... What's very interesting, this is one of the parts of Scripture in the Hebrew, if you were reading in the Hebrew, that the Aleph Tav appears. This is one of those unique places. Now, Aleph Tav, the Hebrew word et, is a part of speech that, they, that is used in common vernacular in, when speaking Hebrew. However, where its placement is, is always very interesting. And in fact, after the title of our Torah portion, Baha Alokha, when you set up or when you raise up, immediately following that Hebrew word in the Hebrew scripture is the Aleph Tav. So speaking to Aaron and speaking to the high priest and it says, when you raise up 
the Aleph Tav. When the Aleph Tav is raised up, there is, you obviously, for those of us as believers in Yeshua, knowing that the prophecy of our, the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross, just as Moses' staff was lifted up in the wilderness, here we have hidden in our scripture that that very same uh, pattern. Also, when it says that the light should be in front of the lampstand, well, that speaks to my spirit where it talks about as we lift up Yeshua in our lives and in our belief, we make him first. We have him be our lead, our guide, that we put it in front of us. And also the, the menorah itself was made of hammered work, that the workmen and the craftsmanship needed to create that. If we almost put ourselves either in the position of the menorah and the Lord leads us with our light, we have to be worked and chiseled by the master and by the master craftsman to make us who we are, as well as if you relate the menorah itself to the Messiah, he too was beaten and crushed so that he could be the Messiah. So many parallels here. Simply in four verses at the beginning of Numbers chapter 8 that I could spend longer and we could just wax on about how wonderful and parallels between the menorah, the Messiah, and what these things can mean to us. But it doesn't stop there and we have a lot more to get to in our Torah portion. The rest of Numbers chapter 8 goes on to talking about the cleansing and the dedication of the Levites. That they were to be set apart once again but in front of the children of Israel. This time they were given, and it's, the scripture gives us is that they were a wave offering before the Lord. That they were presented in front of the children of Israel and they were presented as a wave offering. It also reminds us that the Messiah or God commanded the sons of Israel to redeem the firstborn. They said the firstborn of Israel is mine and belongs to the Lord. But here we have the language very clear that God has now accepted the substitute of the Levites in place of the firstborn of Israel. That the Levites now, the, that tribe, belongs to God and that that's a substitution and in place of the firstborn. In the same way that the Messiah stands in the gap for us, that he's our savior, that he's the acceptable sacrifice for our sin, our punishment, this is now God choosing the Levites as a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. Many scholars believe that this is in, uh, this is in reaction to the sin of the golden calf that is opposed to the sons of Israel being an acceptable before the Lord, that instead we have to dedicate and have the clean and pure Levites be that acceptable substitute as opposed to the actual firstborn of Israel. It says this, also that the uh, Levites are to begin the work of the tabernacle. It says here from 25 years old to per perform the work of the tabernacle until the age of 50, in which that there was a set age that the Levites could be at 50. They were to retire from working the tabernacle. What's interesting here is that when we counted the Levites in our census earlier in the book, we counted them from 30 years and up. Yet here it says that at 25 years old, they were able to perform the service of the of the tabernacle. Sages say that what the reason for this is that those first five years, the opinion is that those first five years were training to, so that they could be, that they would not make any mistake. Remember the importance of the Levites to be those intercessors between God and Israel that they could not be unclean. They couldn't make a mistake because mistakes led to someone losing their life in the processes of the tabernacle. So the training that went into these Levites performing the services of the tabernacle was very, very critical to 
to do. So when we say 25 years old is when they began, yet they were counted from 30. Scholars believe the, that age gap was a time of training for the Levites before they could truly perform the services of the tabernacle on their own or maybe individually. Our portion continues on in chapter 9, where we talk about the second Passover. That we now, it's very interesting, and I've noted here in my Bible that in, here in chapter 9 and going into verse 10, or chapter 10 as well, the number 2 suddenly takes on an incredible meaning. In, the, in chapter 9, we start talking about the second Passover that the children of Israel kept. In the second year after leaving Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai, and then they keep the Passover again. And this is where we get the interesting commandment of if one is defiled by a dead body, to then they wish to partake in the Passover. They wish to keep the memorial Seder of when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt. And they come before you, and, and someone come, came to Moses and said, we became defiled by a human corpse. Somebody died in front of us or before us. Accidental. We didn't mean for this to happen. How do we then continue to partake in the Passover? And this is where we have the commandment where it is allowed that on the second month of the year, you may keep the Passover then. This is the only um, appointed time that there's almost like this extra stipulation for, and it leads us to understand the importance of the Passover, that memorial of us remembering the covenant God made with us, that even if you're unable to do it once, God makes a way and a plan and a purpose to do it again in the second month. It also reiterates here verse 14 of chapter 9. And it says, And if a stranger dwells among you and would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and the native of the land. Now, many people believe this is not necessarily just a Gentile from the nations who just randomly is walking by, that this is somebody who believes in the God of Israel, who is a part of you, part of your family. But it says that the stranger among you, that's one ordinance, one law for not only the native born, but the stranger as well. This speaks to those who are not native born, that they still have equal right to the blessings of the covenant, as well as it, it reiterates that they are to come and partake of the Passover. Over, but they have to follow the same rites and procedures and question comes of circumcision if they have to be circumcised to uh, partake in the Passover some of many have said whether it is the circumcision of the heart or the circumcision of the flesh I don't have the time right now to go into the exact details of whether what we believe as far as who can partake of the Passover obviously we put our trust in the Lord and we continue to seek his blessings and for those of you that are not native born, we still want you to earnestly yearn to keep the Passover with us and join into covenant with Abraham, with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I said the number two is prevalent. We also have that show up again because we have the description of the pillar in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It takes on these two forms at different times. And again, it says the children of Israel, they followed this pillar. They followed the cloud by day. They followed the fire by night. If it was going someplace, the children of Israel did follow that. Now, many of us have drawn the parallels that the, to Yeshua the Messiah being that pillar that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. It continues on talking about now a commandment about two silver trumpets that were created. 
that would call the people together, that would join everyone together in the congregation. So not only do we have this cloud, this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that led the children of Israel, we create this, these other things to bring the children of Israel together into one unison, into one company. And so two silver trumpets are made. Why two? Why weren't silver trumpets made for all the 12 leaders of the tribes? Why didn't we have 12 silver trumpets that called each tribe to their banner in, in that? Instead, we have two. Again, like I said, that number two is taking on some incredible meaning here in our passage. It says that when, you, when both of them were blown, it said the congregation shall gather before you at the tabernacle of meeting. But if you only one of them was blown, then only the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel shall gather to you. Once again, the Messiah continued to, the, the Lord laid on my heart, the Messiah appearing in this portion. Why two silver trumpets? Why silver? Why not gold? Why not any other form of material? Well, silver is the, the it has a spiritual representation of redemption. And we all know who the Redeemer is, Yeshua the Messiah. And so when you see the number two and you think of the Messiah, one of the first things that a lot of people think about is him coming twice, his first coming and his second coming. And what's interesting that I see here is this, is that when, the, when only one of the trumpets was blown, that all of the leaders and the heads of the divisions of Israel would come. And if you think about the, taking a broad look at, at everything with the Messiah's first coming, what did he do? He came and he, decided, he taught us to make disciples of the nations, to create leaders and teachers of the words, the commandments and everything. And what we're anticipating for his second coming is the redemption of the whole world, the whole of the, the, the earth and the fullness thereof. And that so when one is blown, one of these trumpets, the leaders were brought together. And yet when both were blown, the entire congregation was brought together. This speaks to me and encourages me for the future second coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer, who's p patterned in with this silver. And the, we have these two trumpets that when he comes the second time, when both of those trumpets are blown at the last trumpet, that then the whole world will be gathered together to him at his tabernacle. What an amazing prophecy we have simply just as we describe these two silver trumpets that would help to organize the children of Israel. But when it comes to the scripture, we always know. There's more going on and there's more blessing to be had if we just dig in just a little bit deeper. Look for the hidden meanings and allow the Lord to speak to us and lead us. Amen. It continues to go that as they organized the children of Israel, the rest of chapter 10 goes into explaining when they how they departed from Mount Sinai. That it says that when the, the trumpets were blown, they would join together. We have another listing of those 12 leaders that were listed in the first chapter of Numbers. That they joined together and explained how they left and set out the camp. It said the camp of Judah went out first. And then in the midst between the camp of Judah and the camp of Reuben, it says that the uh, sons of Gershon and Merari carried the tabernacle. And so we have some organization to how this company of people moved from Mount Sinai. First thing that was right off the bat here, starting at verse 11 of chapter 10, it says it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year, the tabernacle, the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle of testimony. The number two, again, is showing up in our pattern, in our passage here, this time three times right in the row between 20th, second month, second year, that this number two, still trying to see 
What's the Lord speaking to us here? What is this? Are we talking about two of what? Two of something. Again, are we talking about the Messiah and his two comings? We will continue on. So they journeyed from they journeyed from the from Sinai and they're now moving toward the promised land and it shows the organization here and it also says that the ark of the covenant went before them. Now reading here at verse 33, let me say this. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. Three days, obviously, to those of of Christian belief, obviously has great significance to us. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for three days, for three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day as they went out from the camp. So this Ark of the Covenant led them out as it went. So we're following this pattern of truly being led by the things of the Lord and being led by his blessing and his covenant that he's made with us. And then we get to verse 35, where this has had a great amount of commentary on it and has ministered to a great number of people that have um, the sages say a lot of things about these next two verses. Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. You've heard them before, and let me read them again. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said... Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the many or myriad of thousands of Israel. This is the blessing. These are the words that are said anytime that if you've ever been in a formal Torah service, that this is the words that are spoken that render honor to the Torah scroll, which we call the word of the Lord, the Torah scroll that's behind me here, that we render that honor to the word of the Lord and that there's we've always had these parallels between the word of the Lord, between Yeshua, the Messiah, that we render this honor to the Messiah himself. If the Messiah departed and walked out from uh, the assembly or walked into the assembly, these would be the words that might be laid on someone's heart to say, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let as he walks in, may those who hate him flee from him. That only his faithful followers would follow with. And so this same honor that we, that in Judaism, who doesn't believe in the Messiah, Yeshua, they render this honor to the Torah scroll. For those of us who are believers in Yeshua, we see the parallel. We see the pattern and the connection. We see that number two, these two things between the word of the Lord, the law, and then him walking in pure spirit and being truly the Messiah of Israel and these things connected. This passage, these two verses, also very famous for knowing, for having two inverted noons surrounding this passage. Many have said, I verified this uh, several times over, that the that sages say that there's so much wisdom in these words. They set these things apart. This inverted noon um, in the as the scribes write it, we met, we believe it's really almost like a punctuation mark. In fact, I was in, I was interested to find out that uh, in a, in computer code, when you write a a font or a set of words, there's a series of of commands that you can do to produce all of special characters that you have in a font or or in a code, various uh, glyphs of a font. And so you have all your Hebrew letters, you have all your Roman letters, numbers, various things. In Hebrew fonts, they actually do have a code for the inverted noon. That it's actually a glyph in within their font and in there in the Hebrew language that for them, it's almost a punctuation mark. But for those of us who are looking at at it from a spiritual principle, there's a great amount of things to learn from this. 
Let's first mention this interesting thing about the number noon that I discovered, or somebody said quickly, and then I realized it had some significance. The, no, the letter noon is the 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The number 14, some people might say, well, I don't know if I've really seen that number before. I have personally done a great amount of study on the number 42, which has, has a great significance with the journeys in the wilderness. It also has parallels to the generations between Abraham and Yeshua. And the number 14 is fascinating because 3 times 14 equals 42. That there are, and there's a natural break in the generations from Abraham to Yeshua that, in fact, I'll just say this, there are 14 generations between Abraham and King David. This number 14 has a great significance to, again, paralleling to Yeshua, the family, the genealogy of Yeshua. The number 14 has significance. We are in the book of Numbers, of course. Also, the letter noon represents life, the quickening of life. It also, the, the word, the picture, uh, the pictograph of the letter is that of a fish. Now, many people have paralleled this to the story of Jonah, the redemption of Jonah. And in fact, it's the sign of Jonah that ties to the prophecy of Yeshua, that he'll be as he was in the belly of the whale for three days. So shall the son of man be in the ground, in the earth for three days. And so noon, fish, life, Yeshua, Jonah, they're all connected and tied together. The other fascinating thing is that this inverted noon appears also in another part of scripture it appears in uh, psalm 107 i believe seven different times before seven verses there and those verses in psalm 107 have to do with the storms of the sea and them them being calmed before the lord which again draws a parallel to the story of jonah as he was on a ship and the sea tossed the ship and he then that's what caused the lot to fall on him and to go into the belly of the fish Again, all of these things are connected right back to the Messiah. So what is the so what are we trying to learn here? What what is truly what are we looking to do? And what we want to do is these two two phrases here. Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And then when the ark rested, return, O Lord. This connects back to the son of man who ascends and who descends. And that we continue to have our faith in him and the blessing in him that as he rises up in the midst and as he goes, we follow and that we have our belief solely in him. And that then when he comes to rest, that we too continue to follow him and we pray and ask that he come to rest in our midst, that we may be continue to be close in our covenant and our joining together with the Messiah. Again, so many parallels to the Messiah coming out of this passage here. And the funny thing is, we're only about half done with our Torah portion. What a wonderful blessing it is. This Torah portion, again, it has so much meaning to it. And that number two, two inverted noons, continues to uh, be patterned here in our portion. The, the narrative of the book of Numbers now shifts. Here as we get to uh, Numbers chapter 11 and on, suddenly we suddenly see... A lot more complaining, mumbling, grumbling. We get more stories, not as much commandments to the children of Israel, to Moses on what to do. But now we have the reaction of the children of Israel to all of these things, to these blessings. This ark would go out. We're following the pillar. All of these things are wonderful that the children of Israel, they set out to do these things. It looks like we're putting the Lord first, right? Well, what we do is we come to... Uh, Numbers chapter 11, let me go ahead and read the first portion here. Now, when the people complained, 
It displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he came, so he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Very interesting thing. We've just talked about how they were leaning, they, they were following the cloud, they were, the, the Ark of the Covenant was going before them. Moses is proclaiming, rise up, O Lord. Yet the first reaction, the first thing, it doesn't mince any words, it says, when the people complained. This goes back to, this is the narrative where we sit here thousands of years later reading the words and we feel the Lord leading us and guiding us and we're blessed in our beliefs in the scripture. And then we see the children of Israel, we see their reaction and we're like, why couldn't they get it? Why couldn't they just turn their hearts to the Lord? And so, but again, they are there and these words for us is so that we may learn, so that we may learn these teachings, these lessons to not complain. This is a fascinating part also, and this connection I'll hope to uh, share more later. This location, Taborah, is actually listed here and not listed in Numbers chapter 33 when it talks about the journeys of the wilderness. So that's a fascinating question. Why is this location mentioned here and not mentioned in Numbers 33? It continues on to talk about how the mixed multitude, they yielded to an intense craving. They were hungry. They wanted meat. They remember the fish that they had in Egypt and all of the things that they had. The problem is, is back in Egypt, all of the things that they freely ate was the garbage that the Egyptians didn't want to eat. It was all the extra. It was all the cast off. Yet there they are complaining about this. Then it can, then the narrative goes, they describes the manna again, that it was like coriander seed and that it was cooked in pans and it had the taste of a pastry baked with oil. That it's like, why are we complaining about what we have when what we have is an amazing blessing? Not only is it bread from heaven that appears before us every single morning that we don't ask for. We eat it, we consume, we wake up, and it's there again. And it has the taste of, of cake made with honey and fried in oil. Yet we're complaining and begging for meat. This is the children of Israel rejecting the bread of life. Rejecting the Messiah, so to speak. Even though the Messiah here has not yet, he he's, hasn't walked the earth yet by this point in chronology. I just got done describing how all of these things are all leading to the Messiah, the perfect plan of God to redeem his people, to have covenant with his people. Yet the sons and the children of Israel in their spiritual immaturity reject those things. They reject the bread of life. It's not until Yeshua comes and, and, and then speaks and ministers to all the people, making disciples, that he then says, I am the bread. He who eats of me will never be hungry again. And that it's that word and that instruction that has now gone through the generations and through the world today that where we have approximately a billion people who have a professed faith in God who wish to partake in that bread. This is, again, all part of God's plan and his teaching and instruction. Where the children of Israel rejected the bread, that doesn't mean that God cast them away and that the children of Israel not still his chosen people. But we now have a testimony of desiring to eat that bread, to partake in the bread of life that God continues to lead us and guide us and nourishes us and meets our needs. And we live a blessed, upright life before the Lord. Amen. 
My time is running a little short. We do talk also about the Lord calling Moses to gather 70 men, 70 elders of Israel, that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon these 70 men. There is an amazing parallel that um, I endeavor to do at some point in time with Luke chapter 10, when the Messiah himself appointed 70 men to go two by two into the cities and to preach the word and to, to call for repentance. And there is a direct parallel between this passage and Luke chapter 10. And in this passage, we have an interesting thing where the men were called before the tabernacle. The spirit was poured out upon them, but two men remained in the camp. Two men remained in the camp and prophesied. And that connection between the men in the gospel going two by two into the cities, there's a connection here. And what happens is that we don't know what the spirit is really doing here. These men prophesy among the camp. And then it also says that the men were to prophesy. But then it also has this curious phrase where it says, and they never did so again. We don't really know the, the, the narrative is not clear. And so the connection is is truly, I believe what Yeshua did in the Gospels is what we Moses and God was intending to do here in the children of Israel. But again, we have the mistake. We have the rejection. We have the not fulfilling the perfect plan that God originally sets out to do here amongst the children of Israel. But our answers to why these things happen come in the form of Yeshua teaching us um, there in Luke chapter 10. So I encourage you to read that and to see and draw those parallels out. And uh, as with the leaders and teachers continue to teach, we want to continue to study the word of the Lord together and learn these things together. Amen. The Lord sent quail before the children of Israel. And this is the time in which they famously, they gathered up all the quail and they reject the bread from heaven. God sends this quail and they go to gather up all this quail that they want to keep and store and save for themselves because they require meat. But then what happens is the Lord sends a great judgment and that they die of a plague while the meat is still in their teeth, that they would be that, that they'd be um, judged at that point in time by God. And then this place became famously known as Kibroth Hata'ava, which they is the which means the graves of craving. And so that this again tells us the story, the hearts of the children of Israel. One of the things that's fascinating about this is how much quail the men actually gathered. That says that the one who gathered the least amount gathered ten homers of quail. Now what's a homer? Well a single homer is actually two hundred and twenty liters of volume. And that ten homers would actually be two point two cubic meters of quail. We're talking two big baskets of a cubic meter that the one who gathered the least, that's what they gathered. We have a very clear indication of the sin of gluttony being present here, that these children, these men who craved the meat so much, they rejected the bread with the bread. They had to gather only what they needed for the day and it would be there again tomorrow. And then they this is the complete antithesis to that belief, to that following of the word of the Lord, that one would gather so much that they could know there's no way they could ever consume it. Even in a year might be that if you had two giant freezers full of some sort of poultry or chicken, would you be able to eat that even in your own in your own family, in your own life? I don't think so. So we have this very clear antithesis to what God is intending to do. And these struggles will continue on through the book of Numbers.
in uh, as we go through the rest of our story and as we start to approach the rebellion of Korah um, and other issues that come up here in our scripture. The last part of our Torah portion for this week is the rest of chapter 12 as well. This is where Miriam uh, and Aaron grumble directly against Moses for him marrying an Ethiopian woman or a Cushite woman. And what happens here is we have a judgment that falls upon Miriam that she contracts leprosy in this conflict. She's cast out of the camp for seven days, but then is able to return. This is where the dissension, not even amongst the children of Israel and the, the other um, the commanders of Israel, it, it actually the dissension and the problems and the conflicts arise even amongst the leaders of Israel. And that this is something that we should always take note of and take to heart, that we never come against the leadership of God. The, the anointing that God has poured out upon him. Moses was the unquestioned anointed leader of the children of Israel. That even someone who thinks that they might have some say-so in it, that they have a place. The sister of Moses, perhaps she's allowed to speak something to Moses if she has an issue with something he did, or Aaron. But we have a judgment fall upon Miriam in the course of this story as well. I believe that one should, we should always maintain a respect for authority, spiritual authority and physical authority. We can only do what God has placed in front of us. He has called us to follow him. We must respect that authority and follow it alone. Now, it's harder for some people to discern spiritual authority. It's sometimes it's unclear who the physical authority has been placed if Information hasn't been shared, but one thing that I take to heart, for, and this is ministered to me personally, is to always have that healthy respect for the authority that has been placed before you. If you can discern what the Spirit of the Lord is doing, then follow that. If you can follow after the person that you, that you are subordinate to, that if you have a leader, a manager, a boss, a pastor, a leader, whatever that person may be, that we submit to that. That we do whatever's in front of you, that when you are, we should always find that authority. We're, we're looking for the balance in all, at all times between the spirit and truth and between physical things and spiritual things. And so what we should always do, though, if we can learn anything from this Torah portion, is to follow the authority that God has put before us. If it be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that we can all see miraculously in the sky, amen and amen. When that goes, I'm going. If we can set up a system that of trumpets to be blown, that when you hear these sounds, you come before. Amen and amen. Let us do that. And when those things happen and when those things lead, let us have reverence to them. Let, me, let us praise the Lord. Proclaim the Lord when the ark, when whatever it is that is the representation of God that we're following, when it gets up and moves, let us say, rise up, O Lord, enemies scatter from this place. We're following this. Those are the things that we can learn to do. However, if we fail to do those things, if we choose our own desires, our own lusts, our own wants above those things, if we grumble, if we complain, if we think, well, well, yeah, the, the pillar's moving, but I, you didn't pack up your tent the way that I packed up my tent. All of those things are nothing but distractions. And what it is, is it's breaking the very law, the very commandments of God. Because he commanded you to follow these things, to do those things. And it is our responsibility as subordinates to the master of the universe 
to when he sets up a plan, a chain of authority, we respect that authority and we follow and we do what he says and in the way that he leads. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for this Torah portion in the book of Numbers. And we thank you, Lord, for the children of Israel, for the example that they give, the example they have set for us to learn, Father. Sometimes they did well, Father, and we wish to replicate those examples. When it says they followed the pillar, Lord, we too desire to follow the pillar. But, Father, when it shows that they broke your covenant, broke your commandments, Lord, just parts of them, not, not everyone, but the, some of those that... Um, were led by their lusts and by their own selfish desires, Father. I pray that we learn to not follow after them. May their example and their testimony be a blessing to us. May we take application to the mistakes that they made and not do those. And may we take application of those that have a testimony of following your word, following your instruction, Lord. And may we be like them. Father, continue to lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, send us signs that we for us to follow lord if it may be something spiritual father i pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear to follow that spiritual lead and father if it be something physical lord if it be the people that you bring around us lord to lead us in the places that we go to instruct us to manage where we go and what we are to do if it's to be something physical a sound or a signal for us to Remember and know what to do and where to go. Father, I pray that our physical ears and our physical eyes be attuned to those things as well. That we not look down at ourselves and look at our own selfish desires, but we have our eyes toward the hills, Father, looking for the leadership and the authority to lead us and guide us, be it spiritual or physical. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for everything you do here in our lives. So we thank you for the Sabbath. We pray a special blessing upon those and the rest they receive this week. So it's in your son, Yeshua, that we pray all of these things. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet V'chayalam Nata Betocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. It's a privilege to be with you here again to discuss the Haftarah this week. Uh, this week's Haftarah portion comes uh, matching Beha Aloha, the uh, Torah portion that we have in the book of Bedmedbar of Numbers. Uh, this week's Haftarah portion comes from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, uh, chapters 2, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 7. And so we're going to uh, take a look at this portion of scripture here today, and there are some absolutely amazing things that we're going to discover here. Uh, now, in Beha Aloha, as we heard from, from Ephraim, uh, there's, it's almost as if there's two portions to it. The first portion, uh, you know, is pleasant and nice and, and has a good story to tell. And in the second portion, uh, it's not quite the same thing. You, you've got this story about, you know, how the, the children of Israel and the rabble that was among them, uh, that they, they lust for, for uh, animal flesh, essentially. Uh, and so they're, they're just not satisfied with the manna that the Lord is providing for them. And so basically, um, you know, you've got this, this hunger, this, this hunger to feed their God, uh, if you know what I'm saying, okay? Uh, they're, they're serving their belly uh, rather than serving the Lord. Uh, and so then we see this complaining against 
uh, Adonai's chosen leader, Moshe, the anointed leader, Moshe. Uh, and there's this complaining that comes from a very near and dear source, his brother and sister even. Uh, and so essentially what we see in the second part of the Halokha here, as Ephraim talked about, is the uh, children of Israel going through numerous struggles dealing with the human condition. OK, and so this is the the uh, circumstance, the situation we find ourselves in when reading the Halokha, that it, it starts off on a positive note and then it seems to end on a, a slightly negative one. Uh, and then as you were uh, would then read the Haftra, it starts off with a fantastic note, one of hope, of, of joy. Uh, and so as we see here, as we pick up in the Haftra, it's a message of hope and restoration as we read here in chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Adonai. Now there is a message of hope and restoration. Now the beauty of this is that that Adonai says that he will vishakanti, he, I will dwell. Uh, now, this, this word vishakanti, okay, it, it, at the root of it is shakan. And this word shakan should down, uh, sound very familiar to us because it's the root from which we get the word mishkan, which is the tabernacle. It is the dwelling place. And so this word shakan actually uh, appears in numerous places uh, and it's um, very significant. So we see in Exodus uh, chapter 24, in verses 14 and 15 of Exodus chapter 24, right, this is right after the scenario where the 70 elders of Israel are invited with Moshe and Aharon up onto Mount Sinai to essentially have a dinner uh, with Adonai. They, they eat in his presence kind of thing. So they have a, a, a fellowship with him. It says there in verses 14 and 15, Then Moshe went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The kavod, the glory of Adonai rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. OK, now what we have here, it says, Vayishkon kavod Adonai, the glory of Adonai Vayishkon or dwelled. Okay, Shakan is again the root word that's being used there. And so we have this example of this, his a dwelling presence, generally speaking, when he dwells, there's the kavod, the glory that is present. And we will see this in numerous portions, for instance, when the cloud fell onto the tabernacle and no one was able to enter the tabernacle because his presence was so heavy there. This was the kavod, the glory that was there, that was shakan, dwelling in the mishkan, the tabernacle, the dwelling place. And so when we see this, this uh, reference here in Zechariah, of how he promises that he will dwell among his people and that we are to sing with joy because of this, then it makes a whole lot more sense as to what he is transmitting to us here in the book of Zechariah. Uh, you see, Zechariah, uh, contextually, he ministered during the time of the construction of the second temple. So there was no actual temple that was in use at this time, but it was being built at this time. It was right after the uh, children of Israel had been released from uh, Persia. Uh, and they had been given the release to go ahead and go back to Israel and start building the temple, uh, the days of Nehemiah and, and uh, of Ezra. And so Zechariah is uh, in the same contemporary type of time. And so the, the importance of this is that when Zechariah speaks these words that 
he will come and he will shakan. He will dwell with his people. It's in the context of the fact that they know that from Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11, this was during the first temple period. In those chapters, in Ezekiel 8 through 11, you see the story of how the spirit, the ruach, departs from the temple. The, the glory leaves the temple and it never returns. There's no mention any, anywhere in scripture that the glory returns to the temple. And so here in Zechariah 2.10, it's essentially a promise because he says, I will dwell with you in this, in this scripture in, in 2.10. And that is hearkening back to when he dwelt in the Mishkan, when he dwelt in the temple, when his presence, his glory was there. And so now we have this promise that this will take place. Uh, we also see here that uh, there is a, another um, verse in verse 11 that is incredibly significant. It says, many nations will join themselves to Adonai in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell, Shekan, in your midst and you will know that Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts, has sent me to you. Now, this says, Vu goyim rabim el Adonai. Literally, and lava. And lava. Lava, this, this root word in Vu. Uh, lava is to join or to cling to. And it's, so essentially it's saying, and to join or cling to the nations. Great, meaning many nations. To Adonai. So many nations will cling to or join Adonai at this point. This is incredibly uh, interesting because in, in the Nilvu, this, this uh, Hebrew word that's used here, lava again is the, the root word. Now this root word lava is also a very well known and very important word in the scripture. Uh, as we turn to Genesis 29 verse 34, it says something very interesting. It, speaking of, of uh, Leah, the unloved wife of Yaakov, it says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. Levi comes from Lava to join or to cling to. And, and so we have here the Hebrew that, that reads, Yilva ishi. Eli, and joined or attached my husband to me. And so we see that there's significance in the fact that when we read by extension here, that many nations will join themselves to Adonai in the same fashion that Leah speaks of how my husband will join, be attached to me because I've borne him three sons now. These, these many nations who will essentially then Levite themselves to him we see an incredible connection so first this harkens to this week's parasha which describes how adonai actually chose and separated out the levites unto himself he chose in this parasha the the levites to be his in place of the firstborn of israel and then we see here that the same phrase lava that's at the root of the levite is being spoken of, of many nations in this day, that they will join, they will be separated, they will cling to him and be his. And second, it brings to mind numerous other verses. As an example, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, just as the children of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, and just before they are to receive the words, the very words of life, the Torah, 
It says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Here we have another link because we see that we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now we understand that this is strictly a, a, a term that's referring to Leviting ourselves, to joining ourselves unto him. And so then we see that all these things are starting to make sense together, that many nations will join themselves to him, that at the root of that is the word Levi, Levah, and how Levi has been called out in this week's parasha unto him to be consecrated to him solely for him. And we see the same thing taking place here at the foot of Mount Sinai where he speaks to his people and he says, I've called you out of all the nations and you are mine. You will be consecrated unto me. This is an amazing story here. Uh, we also see if we look even deeper in Isaiah 56. Uh, verses 6 and 7, it says, Also the foreigners who Hani Lavim al Adonai joined themselves to Adonai. So the same scenario is taking place here. Also the foreigners who have joined themselves to Adonai to minister to him, to love the name of Adonai, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from prof profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is the love language of our king. He wants all nations to come and love him and join him and keep his instructions. And so as we have heard that call and, and we who many of us are of the nations have responded to this. We see this word coming alive in our very own days, in our very own time. We see the same theme is, is stated in another portion of the book of Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 14 verse 1. When Adonai will have compassion on Yaakov and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will the Neelva join them and attach themselves to the house of Yaakov. So we see this this theme continues to run where we see this word lava continue to pop up about joining and attaching themselves to Adonai and it will be the nations that will be doing this. And so this is very exciting because if we keep in mind the words of Zechariah, what's being spoken here in the days of the prophet Zechariah, here there's no restrictions According to the to the words of Zechariah in, in chapter two, verse 11, many nations will join themselves to Adonai. And while he's dwelling in their presence during that time, and we see the words of Isaiah that his house will be called a house of prayer for many nations. OK, and then we have the scenario here at that stage where any one of the nations theoretically could have joined and joined into Israel based upon these words. Today, it's not quite so easy. Uh, there are political restrictions. If you wanted to try and move to the land of Israel and to literally join yourself to Lavah, to Levite yourself unto the house of Jacob, 
um, you're going to have some problems if you are not native born. They won't allow you to do so. They, they will say, no, you cannot make Aliyah. You cannot live among us. You cannot become a citizen. You can stay here for a short period of time, but you must leave. Um, so we have these political restrictions that are placed upon this fulfillment right now at this time. In fact, here's the irony is that the very grandmother of David, the great grandmother of David, Ruth, in today's world, she wouldn't be allowed Israel citizenship. Now, she did marry an Israelite, and from that standpoint, she would be allowed in. But if she were to just enter the, the, the state of Israel as a, a foreigner, she would not be accepted in right now. Okay, so we see, however, that there is a, a time that's coming according to uh, Zechariah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 56, where these things will be fulfilled, where the nations will come and they will join to Israel. They will join themselves to Adonai and they will be, become part of the house of Jacob. As is often the case, however... We start off this parasha with a song of victory. Sing for joy, O Zion. Uh, we see that there's a hope and there's a, a, a message of redemption and a, and a future and, and unity. And then it's followed up with chapter 3, which then gives us in the face of victory, adversity is never far behind. It says here in verse 1, Then he showed me Yehoshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Adonai, and Hasatan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we have an example of the high priest being presented before Adonai and the adversary standing there as the accuser to accuse him. So what is the response to this challenge from the adversary? This part is very telling. Adonai said to Hasatan, Adonai rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Adonai who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is like my dad is going to beat up your dad. Okay? <laughs> this is a scenario where it's, oh, you think you're going to stand there and accuse? No, uh, get out of here. And Adonai smacks him to the curb kind of thing. Okay? Now, we see, however, that there's something very important that's said here, because um, so for for some of you, you may come from the same kind of uh, uh, tradition that I have come from. I've come from a tradition where, uh, dare I say, <laughs> Pentecostal, um, where um, this this verse is abused. OK, because it, this verse is often twisted and used out of context, because in the uh, certain certain movements will say um, people think that they have the right to rebuke Hasatan. Uh, I rebuke you, Satan, is uh, the words that I heard many times when praying in a spiritual fervor. Um, the scripture doesn't align with that. The scripture says here specifically, Adonai rebuke you. And we see another example of that in Jude 1, 9, where it says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moshe, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, Adonai rebuke you. There's the proper authority when rebuking the adversary. It is by him that we rebuke him and not by any power, strength or might of our own hand. In fact, that keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to that statement here. You see, although the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, has reared his ugly head here in this in this chapter, in chapter three, as is always the case with Adonai, as it says in first Corinthians 10, 13, Elohim is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
But with the temptation will always provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. You see, all we need to do is call upon our great king, the one who rebukes him. And we don't need to rely upon our own strength to rebuke him because, number one, we don't walk in that authority. He does. And so he will rebuke the adversary on our behalf. In this scenario, the way of escape is provided through the Messiah himself. As we read on, it says in in chapter three, verses six through eight. And the angel of Adonai admonished Yehoshua, the high priest, saying, thus says Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways. And you will perform my service. Does that sound familiar to what we read in Isaiah? Then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now listen, Yehoshua, the high priest. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Uh Oh, the big guns are coming. Okay, so we now have this reference to the branch. And Adonai is saying, I'm going to bring my branch in. I'm going to bring a stick to beat that adversary with, basically. Okay, and so if we take a look at what this this goes on to to read, um, if we actually skip forward a couple chapters uh, in Zechariah six, where Zechariah begins to speak again or hears about this branch again it says in verse 12 and 13 thus says Adonai Tzavaot the Lord of hosts behold a man whose name is branch for he will branch up from where he is and he will build the temple of Adonai now keep in mind again this is the time frame during which Zechariah is seeing the second temple being built and here we have this prophecy where Zechariah is saying that the branch will build the temple And he will build the temple of Adonai. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Adonai. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be be between the two offices. How does a priest rule as a king? How does he function in two offices? And how does this branch, this man whose name branch, build this temple? How how is this possible when Zechariah is living in a time when he sees the temple being rebuilt by men? And there's this description of this branch who's going to come and build this temple. And not only will he build the temple of Adonai, but he will sit on the throne and function as priest on his throne. Now, this is very interesting, very odd, uh, seemingly, for those who would be hearing Zechariah's prophecy come forth. However... If we look further and we hearken back to what the words of Jeremiah, a prophet who came before Zechariah, said specifically about the branch. Now the pieces start coming together. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares Adonai, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Yehuda, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. This is his name so that we've already identified that his name is the branch. But now we're being further told that his name is Adonai Tzidkenu. This is a very interesting phrase because that term should only refer to one. And now it's being referred to the branch is going by this name. We also see if we skip forward to chapter 33 in the same prophet's uh, work of Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 and 16. 
It says, Behold, days are coming, declares Adonai, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Yehuda. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Yehuda will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he shall be called Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. So here we have a repetition in chapter 23 and chapter 33 of Jeremiah speaking of this branch that will be coming. Now, who is this branch? Zechariah's referred to him. Jeremiah's referred to him. He's doing some pretty incredible things according to the prophets. Well, uh, to give you a little bit of perspective um, and to quote some of the rabbinical sources. So Rabbi David Kimchi, who is known as the Radak, which is a, um, you take the R from Rabbi and the D from David and the K from Kimchi, uh, and that's Radak, okay? So the Radak, uh, he lived in the medieval, medieval times, uh, uh, roughly around 1160 to 1235 AD, okay? He said, concerning this verse in Jeremiah chapter 23, by the righteous branch... Is meant the Messiah. So we have some rabbinical commentary here that identifies the branch as being Messiah. Further, uh, if we check with the, the Zohar, in the propositions of the Zohar, it is said there is a perfect man who is an angel. This angel is Metatron, and they refer to Metatron as being uh, this, this being that uh, exists, that functions as Adonai in places where they cannot quite um, understand or explain why Adonai is doing certain things that he's doing. So here they say, this angel is Metatron, the keeper of Israel. He is a man in the image of the Holy One, blessed be he, who is an emanation from him. Yea, he is Jehovah. Of him cannot be said he is created, formed or made, but he is the emanation from God. This agrees exactly with what is written in Jeremiah 23 of David's branch, that though he shall be a perfect man, yet he is Adonai Zidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. So we see here from the rabbinical commentary that it's saying that this branch is Messiah and this branch who is Messiah, is also Jehovah, is yod heh is what this portion says right here. It also, if we go on, we see here in Isaiah 4, verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of Adonai will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Messiah, the branch, is going to rebuild the temple, and he's going to bring peace onto the earth. Now, if we take a look at where this actually happens, because it hasn't happened yet, but we see that the disciple John describes this perfectly in his vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, where it says, I saw no temple in it, speaking of the new Jerusalem, for Adonai Elohim, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now we understand how the branch is going to rebuild the temple, because he will be the temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of Elohim has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Keep that in mind. Its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, this is very interesting that John would describe not only the Lamb as being the temple, but the light. 
So to bring this full circle, let's keep going. Let's go with Zechariah and go to chapter four. If we look at verses two through seven, it says something very interesting. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spots belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone, the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, there's some really interesting things that are said here. First, we have this example here of where he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai. Now we can now place into context, Adonai rebuke you adversary because it's not by us it's but not by anything that we can do that will change adversity stop adversity in its track tracks stop the accuser but he by his spirit will that adversity be stopped but we also see this this reference here the, the question is what is this what, what is this lampstand with these two olive trees next to it and the angel answers something interesting he talks about this capstone why would he say something like that? Well, if we take a look in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says Adonai Elohim, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul discussing the same thing. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. You have Levited yourself and are of Elohim's household, having joined yourself to Adonai. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Mashiach Yeshua himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in Adonai, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of Elohim in the spirit. So here we see Paul wrapping these things all together at one time saying Yeshua is the cornerstone and Yeshua is the building of the temple. And we who have Yeshua in us, who have invited him into our lives as Lord, as Savior. Now we become little models of that temple as we emulate the temple who will be the source of the light. And so we're not done yet. So we go back to Zechariah chapter 4. And we, if we look in verses 11 through 14, it says something even more incredible. It says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this is in description of the two olive trees that are standing next to the lampstand. 
This lampstand, these the olive trees are pouring their oil into the lampstand in here in chapter four here. And the question is, what are these two olive trees that are next to the lampstand? And the angel's answer is, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The master of the whole earth. They're next to the lampstand. So is this lampstand the Lord of the whole earth? Well, in John chapter 8, Yeshua says, Then Yeshua again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he further says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So here we see that the question was, what is this lampstand and what are the two branches that are next to it? The first answer is the lampstand is the cornerstone. And we understand that the cornerstone is a direct reference to Messiah being the foundation stone of the temple and becoming the temple itself. And then we saw that we are to emulate that being the temple, as Paul talks about, how we are a living, walking tabernacle representing the temple. And that is representative of Yeshua. And then we see then the next question is, what are these two olive trees? And it says they are standing next to the master of the whole earth. And we know that Yeshua being identified as the lampstand, being the light of the world, then we see that he is the master of all the earth. That fits with what the rabbi said about the righteous branch being Messiah and being divine. And now we see that it says, according to the words of Yeshua, that you are the light of the world. And further, don't put your light under a basket, but put your light where? On the lampstand. In other words, place your faith in the lampstand, the light of the world. And now, once you have done that, then they will see, the nations will see your good works and glorify the Father. And guess what's going to happen? The nations will want to lava, to Levite themselves unto Adonai. Why? Because the light lives within you. The light that comes from the lampstand. The lampstand that is the master of the earth. So I leave you today with this. Are you letting your light shine? Let's shine our light in such a way that the world sees and glorifies our Father in heaven and Levites, lavas themselves unto Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, glorious King, for the richness of your word, how everything is so harmonious and fits together so wonderfully. We thank you for speaking to your prophets in days of old to speak to us today that we might glean wisdom from you through their words. As you who are beyond time and space knew that we would be listening to this message today. When you spoke it through your prophets, knowing that we would be living in a day and an age today where we are seeing these things take place within our own eyes. 
Father, we are so grateful that you have been so good to us to grant us the privilege and the opportunity to levite ourselves unto you, to become attached to you, to become a holy nation and a royal priesthood in your service. Father, may we, through your son, Yeshua, become lights of the world. And may we allow that light to shine in such a way that you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In the name of your blessed Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.